Hey friends, you're on the Unhindered Podcast with Jamin. I've popped up for air this week after a deep dive into the writing process and uh, I've put this put this post on uh, Instagram on my story a, a week ago. Um, knock, knock, who's there? Cooked a, cooked a who? Cooked a goose uh, with a photo of me with crazy eyes sitting in my car. Um, hair a mess <laughs> unshaven and really looking disheveled um, and I got a number of comments from friends going what, what did that even mean w- way too cryptic and uh, but I thought it was really funny actually and, and quite obvious that the point I was making was that I had cooked the goose I had gone in deep and hard and and I just come out the other end spat out exhausted depleted ruined uh, in in a bad way, and I I was surprised that no one got that, and I thought perhaps perhaps the assumption is that it, maybe it's easy to write a book, or or maybe that because I've written a number of them already, then there's nothing to it. You just decide to write a book, you put down your ideas that are already well formed, they come out really nicely and succinctly, and they make sense the first time. You, you know your uh, you know you type them in your keyboard. And there you go, you've written a book. So yeah, no problems. What, how could you possibly cook the goose writing a book? And now, there may be some people who are natural writers who find the process easy. Um, I don't think that's been my experience ever. It's, it's all pain and anger. Uh, I'm a tormented artist when I write. It's a, it's a deep, dark process. And very meaningful, meaningful suffering. Um, uh, and when I think about the importance of what I'm writing and the fact that I'm convinced this is my best idea I think this is the idea that represents my most meaningful contribution to the planet one that is most likely to increase the collective collective consciousness of mankind Um, without being overly dramatic it, it kind of feels high stakes and I've understood you know a long time ago that the only way to succeed at anything is the be do have model which is to um, embody the person you want to be, you would need to be actually, in order to succeed at a task from the very beginning. So, you know, you don't write a great book by sitting down and doing the work of writing a great book. You write a great book by being an author, by by being a professional author. And so, this this embodiment idea is the quickest and most effective. In fact, I th- I think it's the only way to truly succeed at anything. Uh, you know, to to be an effective parent. You don't do the work of parenting. You embody a parent. You you are wholehearted. You you take on that role seriously. You just go be a dad or be a mum, and you understand that it's your job, and you're in wholeheartedly. I, I get asked frequently about how do you how do you become a, a keynote speaker, Jamin? Like, what's the path? How do you how do you do that? And I said, well, the only way to, to be a keynote speaker is to be a keynote speaker. You you cannot. You know, reach out to someone organizing a conference saying, well, I'm practicing, I'm not a speaker yet, but I'd like to be a speaker. I'm happy to speak for free. Can I have an opportunity to speak at your conference? No conference organizer is going to take a risk like that. There's no way in the world. They're looking for speakers. So if you're not already a speaker, you will never be noticed. And if you're working on the have, do, be, you know, when I have enough experience or I have enough expertise or I have enough skill, then I'll 
do the thing that would make me successful and then I'll be successful or if you're just a worker and you're just trying to get runs on the board as your strategy you know the more I do the more I'll have the happier I'll be the more successful I'll be those two paths seem to make logical sense but they don't ever work you have to begin with the end in mind and go embody that so all that to say when I when I flick the switch to go okay this is the season for me to write this book I'm convinced that this has gone beyond um, you know what do I want you know I want to write this book that's fine to answer that question but am I actually going to do it because I can want all kinds of things and and I love uh, Jordan Peterson's distinction between wanting something and actually wanting something (laughs) it's like are you sure are you really sure this is what you actually want okay then lock it in Eddie Let's go. And so in some in some journaling, two months ago, I've still I've still got it on my whiteboard. I can look over and see it now. It says writing door unlocked, 5 a.m. every day underneath that. It's like a conversation with myself, reviewing my well-formed outcomes for this season. Um, you know, what do I want? What's the intention behind what I want? And what are the consequences of wanting this? And in the ecosystem of the world and all the competing goals, Uh, the conversation with myself was like yeah I actually want this in this season now I understand what it will cost me to want this and I still want it and I have full permission to want this so flick the switch all in and and from that moment it's in this this embodiment okay go be the writer go embody that guy and so I, I changed my relationship with food and sleep and people and work and family and uh, drop into this deep zone of writing and the energy dump that goes into that is quite extraordinary um, and also part of the consequences of wanting that goal in this season is slightly different to wanting it uh, you know a couple of years ago when I wrote the unhindered book and I had the luxury of just fully embodying the writer for almost three months uninterrupted there was I had very little work a bunch of you know, events had been cancelled obviously for everyone and so I just hid in a cave and I watched my bank account deplete over that time knowing that this was the season, this was my work and so that was okay. My rationale was this is my income and I'm, I'm doing that now so that's my work. Whereas in this season, you know, at the moment I've, I've got clients from all around the world which is which is wonderful things that i've dreamed of are coming to fruition and and doing very meaningful work with some really incredible people um, and have more clients than i've had in an an awful long time you know almost at my limit with clients Um, and in this season too i'm going to also write the book and so that was the instruction from my unconscious around okay then it's got to be 5 a.m it's got to be 5 to 7 a.m every day Um, if you don't do that time then time will be sucked into all the other pursuits and goals so uh so the cost of that is i like i i do enjoy sleep um yeah that's probably not saying anything unique Uh, obviously sleep's important it seems to me that some people can survive off less sleep than others um i'm not someone who survives sleep depleted i've always needed uh, a lot of sleep and i have a nap after lunch almost every day and still get uh, you know seven or eight hours sleep in my main sleep block so to then cut into that and and reduce sleep by two hours a day plus the energy of dropping into a really focused zone uh yeah and so to to emerge out of that having finished the first draft which 
someone, I don't know who explained this to me some time ago, and I found it useful to frame my expectations that writing a book was like running three marathons. You know, marathon one was to get to first draft. Marathon two was the, the brutal editing process back and forward, refining these ideas you know, seven or eight times before you're actually ready to go to print. And then marathon three is sweating. The book is actually getting out there and selling it and promoting it and um, telling people what you've done and, and why they would benefit from it. So um, to have popped up for air after marathon one, but really been cooked, really depleted. It's, and this last week, just how tired I am, how exhausted uh, I've been it's it surprised me um, and and it seems like it surprised a lot of people as well because maybe they've not understood how difficult the process is uh, but it, yeah so I, I'm uh, sweating on editing coming back I've, I've got a two-week break before I'll have another go maybe, maybe three weeks depending on the time frame and then I'll go again and so the process of now refining these ideas back and forth could I say this better could I say this in a way that is makes more sense could I say this in a way that's more enjoyable to read that's um I I tend to be one of the bits of feedback I get from editors all the time is I'm quite adversarial and aggressive in my tone so uh just I I get a bit serious I I think (laughs) and so then I get a bit preachy and the intensity of the way that I'm communicating feels like I'm yelling sometimes which is not fun to be yelled at ever so to go how do you say this in a really precise and strong way without yelling in someone's face because no one wants that um, so yeah but it's part of my popping up for air i i um, took myself to the movies the other day and saw the john farnham documentary uh if you've seen that you'll know what i mean if you haven't seen that boy oh boy i bawled like for most of it and a, because I was super tired, but B, like I will never not cry or be deeply affected in every cell of my body when I watch a real-life version of the hero's journey. I always enjoy the fictional versions because they're so closely mirrored to you know, the, the journey we're all on to find ourselves and to leave our mark and to do the thing and to reach our potential, all, all that confront and overcome the things that hold us back but to watch a real life version of it there's nothing quite like that which is why my favorite genre of book is always biography autobiography hearing someone's story um, and and seeing john farnham the, the process of you know his first success which was too easy and and the curse and because his success came um, really easily as a 17 year old apprentice plumber and got given that song sadie and the popularity of that song, almost the, the most popular song in the 60s. But then he got tied to that and then it became an annoying song and everyone known him as the Sadie guy. And so then when he reinvented himself almost 20 years later and finally found the opportunity to bring his own unique voice, his own unique style and um, bring the real gift to the world, no one wanted to hear it because he's the Sadie guy. And so um, the, the journeyman... Uh, the story of Glenn Wheatley, who became, you know, was a best friend, who became a manager, and go out, went out on a limb to help him bring his music to the world, um, and just the, the crescendo of when you're the voice uh, actually is played on the radio the very first time, 
complete with bagpipes and all, which was John's harebrained idea that no one else thought of, but he knew it must have bagpipes. And when you hear those bagpipes come in for that first time, you know, you understand what a masterstroke that was. But just, but that voice, and, and in the context of the world, and um, you know, there's one scene where he's playing that song to a, almost 100,000 Germans in Berlin before the fall of the Berlin Wall and just the, the tension and just the uprising of people going, you know, we're not going to sit in silence. Um, we, we have a voice and we're not going to, you know, talk to each other down the barrel of a gun. All those lyrics. <laughs> now, John didn't write those lyrics, by the way. I think it was a Canadian artist. Uh, and when when John's management wrote to him and said, could we have permission to release this song? He said, no way, you're the Sadie guy, we can't have that. Um, and anyway, they went ahead and released it without permission and then got permission after, <laughs> which is often the best way to get permission, I find. Ask for forgiveness rather than permission, which is what they did. And thankfully they did because then the world got the real John and he was on his way. So, I mean, I, I, I love watching that in others and I go, I have that in me. And we all do. That's why it moves us. That's why we watch three long, three-hour movies of The Lord of the Rings because we we find ourselves in those stories. And so, you know, the number of times I've, you know, felt this same thing, that I have something to bring, I have something unique, I have something special. And the process of how hard that is, how many times you think it's never going to happen and no one cares and what's the point? And it, do I really have anything anyway? And to then be still here, and, and in the context of where I'm at in my journey, to be on the cusp of releasing um, my my biggest gift, my my big book, my my, you know, I'm, I've called this, I've said it a few times. You've heard me on this podcast say, so this is the one, this is it, this is the this is the Whispering Jack album. Uh, so it was so fascinating watching the pressure John was under and he was in the fetal position after they'd finished recording that just going here it is I've released it and now I'm I'm at the mercy of the world do they do they see it for what it really is will they see it as beauty or an art or will they turn their noses up at it and will they reject me as they have done forever I know it's special but will they know it's special so that's it's such a oh boy it's such a, a powerful and relevant experience it, for me and my journey watching that in someone else so but, but i think we're all the same wherever you are in your process along that uh, it has to be true for each of us and so it's a beautiful reminder to keep on that path to keep not selling out to not shutting up to not giving up to not putting your light under a basket to still bring your gift to the world for the sake of the world because the, the other beautiful thing around that was it wasn't just beautiful for John, it was beautiful for the world. And Tommy Emmanuel tells the story about the first time he heard that song being released on the radio, which, by the way, a bunch of radio stations said, no way, we're not playing John Farnham on our radio station. He's the Sadie guy. We will not. This is 20 years later. We won't play songs. So Glenn Wheatley had to persist. No one even wanted to publish the album. John had to create, sorry, Glenn had to create his own record record label to release it and then convince a radio station to finally play it. And so when, when, when one radio station finally played the song and the world got to hear it for the first time, um, Tommy Emmanuel tells a story of, you know, going around to one of his mates' 
house and he came out bawling and he just heard the song just as Tommy had heard the song in his car and people around the world were hearing this song for the first time and the impact it was having, it was touching their hearts. It was motivating their spirits. It was life-giving. There was something pure about that song in that moment in the history of the world. And so, which, which is the hero's journey thing, right? It's, it's like when the hero does the thing that only the hero can do, the whole world wins. So, you know, if I can get to the point where I actually do the, bring the book to the world and refine it and get it right and, and I don't cook the goose in the process, then I win, sure, but everybody else wins too. And that's the same in your version of this too. Uh, so yeah, I watched I watched John Farnham, but I also I also watched uh, Biodome uh, with Paulie Shaw and Steve Stephen Stephen Baldwin. That's the guy. Uh, if you've seen it's a I think it was made in the nineteen ninety. There you go, nineteen ninety six. Just look that up. Um, two moronic friends um, break their way into the Biodome which is a you know it's a fictional take on biosphere 2 that was an actual experiment done in arizona in 1991 where eight people eight scientists well they weren't even scientists they were they were hippies really and were locked inside this biodome as an experiment of creating perfect atmospheric conditions for two years to see what would happen uh, as an attempt to see whether it was possible to recreate the biosphere of the earth in an artificial way so then perhaps that could be transplanted onto mars or pluto or pluto no not pluto one of um jupiter's moons i don't know i don't think pluto that's too far away but anyway to recreate it somewhere else it's a crazy movie if you've not seen it these guys are absolute idiots and they find themselves in this locked environment uh, with a bunch of serious people trying to run a scientific experiment and you know hilarity and craziness ensues uh, however it reminded me of something i'd read about why bio biosphere 2 failed um, and biosphere 2 by the way is not the second attempt at it it's just saying that biosphere 1 is the earth so biosphere 2 is an attempt to replicate what is the natural closed system of the earth um, and it fails miserably for for a whole bunch of reasons the the you know being locked in an environment uh, for two years uh, they you know the social experiment was very difficult because it was it was difficult they spent most of their time in agriculture uh, trying to grow harvest cook food with limited resources the, the pressure that created and plus the oxygen levels dropped dangerously low and carbon dioxide levels increased dramatically based on soil bacteria that reacted with the concrete of these you know of the structure that was created of the biosphere and so they're they're oxygen depleted they're always hungry uh, they're in a closed environment it's like big brother because everyone knows about this in america and so there's countless tourists constantly looking in knocking on the windows you know watching them do this so um, a very very pressurized environment um, however the the moral of the story is that uh, perfect conditions are not actually perfect and a really useful metaphor there's a few few cool examples of uh, what we can take from that one of the 
cool things was trees would grow quickly because the environment was so lovely, but then would topple over at a certain height. And that was puzzling to the scientists until they realized the absence of wind was creating no need to build strong root systems. And so because there was no resistance to their growth, then uh, they would not develop the strength to, to contain their size. Uh, the other interesting thing was that the perfect conditions were sabotaged anyway by by uh, species that infiltrated. So cockroaches, there was a cockroach species and a species of ant that snuck their way in and thought, oh, you guys have created this perfect environment. Well, we love perfect environments. We love warm, moist, uh, humid environments that we can thrive in. And so they just demolished the ecosystem. They took out bunch of other species they created an, an extinction uh, by capitalizing on the perfect conditions so i like i find when i do this work with people around going back into their childhood and reviewing the wounds which you know the vast majority of people will never go back i, I say this all the time the tragedy is not that we get wounded and explain more about why i say that but the real tragedy is that adults don't go back and explore the wound and there's a bunch of reasons why they don't. But the first is kind of this biodome thinking. It's just the fact that perfect should be good. Perfect is what we're after. Perfect is ideal. Perfect is necessary. Perfect is desirable. And so therefore, when you think about the fact that you didn't have a perfect childhood, it kind of weighs heavy on your soul to think, bugger, you know, that's a real shame. If only I'd had better parents. Imagine what would have happened if I'd had perfect parents. Imagine what my life would be like now. Imagine if I'd had perfect conditions, if I'd grown up in a biodome, if I had the perfect amount of education and money and friends and family, then that would be wonderful. And then, you know, the thinking goes, well, then because I didn't have that, that's why I'm ruined. So now my energy goes into creating perfect, a perfect environment for my children. So, yeah, my life's already messed up, fine, but then I'll invest everything into making sure my kids don't get hurt. And that's, that'll be my gift to them, to create perfect conditions. Uh, but it doesn't work. It's not actually what we need. Life actually thrives in an adversarial world. We, we need resistance. Resistance is part of the system. It's a beautiful part of the system, and it's part of the gift. And so when you review your own childhood, you realize that perfect parents would be an absolute tragedy. Uh, you know, if if you have parents who are always there, who are always wise, who always have incredible solutions, who never miss a beat, who are always loving, who are always present, then you don't ever survive. You don't ever create your own resilience. You don't ever create your own ideas because you don't need to. There's never a problem that you actually have to wrestle with because there's a beautiful solution that that always exists. And you have everything you need all the time. And so you never have to go looking for anything. You never have to delve within. You just have a plethora of abundance all around you. So if ever that is removed, which inevitably it does get taken from you, then you have not built your own system to survive. And so you flounder and you're immature. Uh, so I say this all the time that, you know, the, the best parent to have is the parent who half asses it. You, know, you don't want the absent parent. You don't want the perfect parent because both are very difficult. The absent parent leaves you so confused as to who you are and what you're worth and the assumption is still that you know the archetypal parent knows best so even in their absence they know best they, they knew that you were worthless that's why they're not there so that's that's a difficult thing to break free from and the perfect parent who is just does 
does so well, is, is so clever, kind, wise, loving that create these perfect artificial conditions that uh, there's no wind. And so you get to a certain height, you're about to fall over. You've never developed a root system. So I, I think that's a great comfort for if you're a parent to go, oh, look at this. Uh, it's going to be great to create some adversarial conditions for my kids to not solve everything perfectly, to even upset them, to annoy them, to frustrate them. Because then if they're frustrated with my parenting, then they'll have to be resourceful themselves. They'll assume that they can do it better than me anyway, and so that'll help them on their way. But the point is, when you go back and review the wounds of your past, they belong, they're useful. The wind, the rain, the storms, the hail, the droughts, the hardship, the plagues, the locusts. Like when you zoom out and examine the ecosystem of the closed system of the earth, all of that stuff belongs. It doesn't look like it belongs. It looks like you should want to remove that. But when you do remove it, that creates worse problems than having those things there in the first place. So when you understand the game is inbuilt with challenge and resistance, then you can stop resenting the fact that you had hard things happen to you and realize that you wouldn't want it any other way, even if you could have that. And then you can kind of get over complaining about it and go find the gift in it and realize, look at this, the opportunity to change this didn't exist the first time you went through it. It wasn't fun to go through the difficulty the first time. Not ever was it fun, not ever was it pleasant, and it wounded you. So that sucks. However, the fact that there is this woundedness is the only way that adult, that adults ever become strong and mature. The fact that there is something for them to do, to go back and bring healing to themselves. Um, I, I, I love Helen Keller's wisdom on this subject too. Uh, a slightly different take on this idea. Helen, for those of you who are not aware of this fine woman, she was listed as uh, in the, the most influential and important figures of the 20th century by Time magazine. So she was born in 1880 and died in 1968. But at 19 months old, she got really sick and actually became blind and deaf through that sickness. So, you know, from from almost birth was without those two really important features, functions. Uh, she was blessed with a, a beautiful teacher, Anne Sullivan, who kind of devoted herself to really uh, educating Helen and, and giving her a chance without sight and sound to be able to still learn. So she actually taught her to read and write uh, and taught her so well that, in fact, Helen became the first the first blind, deaf uh, person in the U.S. to have an arts degree. And she actually went on to write 14 books. So a, a, quite a remarkable figure based on the difficulty of her childhood. Uh, and so most people imagine, like, could you imagine being blind and deaf like that? How in the world is it possible to write 14 books when you can't see or hear? I, I don't know that. Uh, however, she found that obstacle as the way to refine a whole bunch of other senses and she still brought, brought great beauty and she brought her gift to the world and is remembered as one of the most influential figures uh, of all the people lived. She's up there in the top 100. So, so she has this beautiful quote. I think it's my favorite quote of hers. Uh, you might have heard this before, but listen to this. So she says that security is mostly a superstition. It does not exist in nature, nor do the children of men as a whole experience it. 
Avoiding danger, this is the kicker, avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure. Life is either a daring adventure or nothing. That's that's so cool because I got, I, there are plenty of people in my world who go down the path of risk aversion, who, who their strategy to live a, you know, a good life and an effective life and a prosperous life is to kind of pride themselves on being aware of the dangers, the risks involved in, um, you know, stepping out and what could go wrong. And so they've found safe pockets of the world to exist in um, where there's, you know, predictable income uh, in, a, in a good neighbourhood uh, with a closed circle of friends, uh, you know, kind of playing to their strengths and, and really being very mindful of avoiding the traps and dangers uh, that are there for all people and almost a sense of self-righteousness around how, how well they are doing at risk aversion. And the, the irony is that they're actually doing terribly at, at risk aversion. In fact, if you are a risk averse person, that's how you describe yourself, if you find you are cautious by nature and feel like you're paying attention to the risks of adventure or the risks of backing yourself or the risks of being an entrepreneur or the risks of investment, you're actually a terribly, you're actually terrible at risk aversion because you're only ever analysing half the risk available to you. You're only ever mindful of the risks of stepping out, but you are not paying attention to the risks of not stepping out. You're you're not mindful at all about what it's costing you to miss opportunities, what it's costing you to never get blood on your knees, to never have difficult experiences in unknown territories. You're not analyzing those risks you are oblivious to the cost of playing it safe and helen who would know she is entitled to this quote says avoiding danger is no safer in the long run than outright exposure it is not safer you do not win by that strategy there is no guarantee that avoiding difficulty avoiding hardship avoiding bankruptcy failure rejection heartache is actually going to benefit you in the long run life is either a daring adventure or it is nothing that's just stunning. I I find great value in that, and I think great. Well, then I'm going to continue. I'm going to continue swinging away. <laughs> that's that's enough of a reason for me to keep doing that. And I I find that useful wisdom for you to consider in the context of of your life wherever you are at as well. So you know the point is have a crack, give it a go, take a chance, play a card, make a mistake. Do something difficult. What well, I'm, I'm really enjoying diving into uh, the work of Carl Jung again as I'm writing this book, and particularly his take on uh, the shadow. And I, I feel like lots of people have misunderstood his work, um, but some of the, the most enjoyable stuff I'm reading about from Carl, he says, "Look, don't don't underestimate the value of sin." Uh, and writing to a, a you know a western world that christianity is the prevailing thought don't don't underestimate the value of doing the wrong thing how else are you supposed to learn how else are you supposed to work out how to love unless you, if you couldn't hate how else you're supposed to work out how to do the right thing without doing the wrong thing like it all belongs it's all part of you you'll misunderstand that you'll think that the failures the mistakes the disappointments are indicative of your character and your nature you'll get embarrassed and disappointed i want to shut that down and you'll bury it in your shadow because you don't know what to do with that part of you. 
But if you can be objective and understand that it all belongs, then you'll realize that there is great value in failure, rejection, disappointment, heartache, mistakes, woundedness, pain. It's, it's all part of the human experience. You want to live a full and meaningful life? Have a crack. Have it. See what you are capable of. See who you really are. See that you are capable of all kinds of terrible things and wonderful things at the same time. And that's what makes you so real and so wonderful. I mentioned that I've got a, a big intake of clients at the moment from all around the world. Uh, one, I, I was on a podcast that Amity got me on recently, um, Warwick Schiller's The Journey On podcast in the US and uh, and I had a client who heard that podcast, listened to it twice, was so moved by it, kind of instantly felt, I've got to reach out to this Jamin character, I don't really know anything about him, but he's making a lot of sense. So she emailed me, said, Jamin, I've got to start some coaching and didn't really ask me any questions at all. Um, I had a quick call with her. She said, great, let's go, let's start. And so, um, you know, most people take a bit more convincing because it's it's a significant cost, it's a significant challenge. I'm, you know, we're diving into existential angst, so it's it's no walk in the park. So often, you know, the journey between I think I like coaching and I'm actually ready for coaching can be drawn out. Some people, I think, some people take, you know, up to three years. That's been my experience with with clients who I've I've heard. You know, they've followed me, they've listened, they've lent in, then they walked away, and then they, the times changed, and now they're listening again, and maybe not quite right, still a bit scared. Eventually, like I, I got to do this. But her, her first experience, yep, good, let's go. And so, anyway, in our, like we're twenty minutes into our first coaching session, she's like, Jamin, you're terrifying. <laughs> like, you are really, really scary. Who are you? Like, what, 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 what have I done here? You are terrifying. And, you know, I laughed and we, can, we carried on. I'm like, yeah, like, sure, this is terrifying and this is a journey into fear and pain, but you'll be okay. This is, you were ready for this. You knew you, knew you were ready for this. Um, and, and she was, and we had it in a really powerful first coaching session. And then session two a week later, again, 10 minutes in, Jamin, you are terrifying. Like, who are you? What, what is this work we're doing? Like, why, why are we journaling headlong into the thing I've always been running and hiding from? Like, what, why are we doing this? How's this happening? And again, I, I, I laughed with her and we, we, we pressed on. And then uh, she said it a third, a third session. And I said, I might just stop you there because even though you're making a joke and, and it's, it's funny what you're saying, you know, language is really powerful and it's indicative of this unconscious um understanding of what you're doing is is really real and raw and and you're in a very vulnerable place right now but whatever you you are using the language that jamin you are terrifying that will create unconscious resistance to this path and then you won't get the thing that you said you're ready for so let's just review that and so i said what is it exactly what do you mean by that what is it that is most terrifying about me why am i so scary she said oh it's easy you you are you are implacable and I, I love learning new words. I don't know how I'd missed that one, but it had not come across my awareness before. And so I got her to explain what it meant. Yeah. For those of you playing along at home who have not heard this word, let me look up the dictionary definition and read it to you here. So implacable means unable to be appeased or placated, and unable to be stopped, relentless. So she was saying, yeah, like, you're implacable you, you will not 
there's, there's no story I could tell you. There's no excuse I could provide. There's no way I could tell you that I'm somehow special or this won't work for me or you can't do this work or insecurity is not solvable. You are 100% certain. So I've, I've never heard anyone who's so certain that not only can you solve this, you must. And it's actually, it's actually relatively simple that there is a, a clear path when you're ready to do this work. And there's, there's a level of logic and structure about how insecurity works that makes it so solvable. Um, you're implacable. And I said, yeah, of course I am because I'm actually not scary. Like if I, if I was scary, then I would be a fool. I would be unprepared. I'd be marching you headlong into a battle that you can't win. Um, but I'm like, there is, you're right, there's nothing you could say to me that would make me go, oh, yeah, look, I hadn't thought about that. And, oh, boy, yeah, we better not touch that. That's, yeah, that's a childhood trauma that, uh, yeah, we're going to, yeah, well, let's dance around that because, yeah, you're really messed up, actually. I'm like, yeah, it's it's not, not real. It's just a narrative you, you've used to make sense of, you know, stuff that was hard to understand really difficult to understand except personally implicating you when you're a kid so yeah well, of course of course you can change this stuff why why couldn't you change it uh, so it's been so much fun working with her we have a we have a there's a lot of laughter through this process because it's just in deep from the very start and so much fun watching a person go bloody hell like i'm actually doing it i'm doing the thing i've never been able to do this has always been 100% impossible and that is why the loving response has been to run and hide now the loving response has been to turn and face and I'm doing it and my life is transforming before my eyes so uh, stunning to watch and um, I, I had a beautiful conversation with uh, a client who, who did my process um, maybe 18 months ago who's now become a, a really great friend and, and look he got a lot out of the process when we did it uh, but compared to some others, you know, maybe, maybe stopped a little short of what was really possible, what was really there. But everyone's on their own journey and ready for different things at different times. And so he, he kind of said it himself, yeah, look, you know, I, I didn't fully get everything I could have out of this process. I got what I needed for the time. And then I kind of danced around and, you know, didn't, didn't fully show up. Uh, so, yeah, 18 months later, he, he called me and said, uh, I just got to let you know what happened in the last week. He said, I'm, I'm still slightly intoxicated by the experience. And the mention of that word, like uh, that sent a wave of energy through my body, which happens from time to time. Um, you know, often I'm really bored by the coaching process, which um, can sound horrible. And I understand that and perhaps not what you want to hear from me. But a really important thing for me to say, and that's why I do say it all the time, because you'd really want me to board because you're not bored. You're in terror. You're in chaos. You're thinking this is impossible. You want someone who's like non-plazed, plazed, fussed, something, non-phased, not ruffled at all. It's like, ah, piece of piss. Yeah, this will be easy. Like, yeah, I could do this while I'm asleep. In fact, I am pretty much asleep. So I'm not ruffled. I'm not buying into your terror. I can see through this. So you'd want that from me. And because I've done it so many times, like um, that's the same story again and again and again. And people feel their problems are complicated and unique, and they never are. So you'd, you'd want me to feel bored. So I'm going to keep saying that I'm bored. Um, but every now and then, a client will ex express what's going on in their life and 
uh, without intending for it to happen, uh, without expecting for it to happen, every cell in my body is impacted by their language. And it's, it's to me, the only way of understanding that is there's life, there's something pure that has come alive. They have found something of themselves that had been hidden and buried and suppressed and rejected and misunderstood and now they found it and they will they will never be able to not find it again and so that has created a ripple of energy around the world and i'm the first person that gets to feel the impacts of that i'm at ground zero and so it's rippling out everyone will get a chance to feel this at some point but i was the first person so so when he said i've been intoxicated like i can still feel that now and even just to say that word because that word um, what an extraordinary way to describe what happens when you realize the power you have at your own disposal so the thing that he found most intoxicating was this idea of rules and agreements so he was describing um, his awareness around his own desire to be masculine and manly and what what that meant to him and he reviewed a bunch of patterns in his life that were fulfilling his desire to be manly but also very incongruent to being a great husband and a great father and a great friend and so the masculinity he had agreed to was quite closed and cold and distant um, and, and in many ways insecure in many ways um, projecting an image of strength at all costs and never able to show vulnerability because that would be unmasculine or demasculine or whatever you know what i mean so anyway he he saw really for the first time that uh, he he was the one who had set up this system he understood at a certain point he had felt um demasculated he had felt feminine he had felt judged for a lack of masculinity and so in in um, response to that to counter that to compensate for a perceived weakness in his own nature he went right well i'll be the most masculine person i know so you will know i'm actually strong and good and valuable as a male because of how masculine i can be so he created these rules and agreements about how things must be for him and that had been the structure of his life Um, and it had created some wins He'd, he'd been able to feel really good about himself in certain times and that strength had had provided some great results in certain areas but it was locking out of him out of everything he wanted and so when he when he processed you know some of the conversations we'd had around the structure of sense making and storytelling and meaning and the fact that you know don miguel's don miguel ruiz the four agreements his his most profound contribution is just you know look it's not the words spoken to us or about us that change our lives just the ones we agree with so this this notion of agreement the power of agreement words have no power words with agreement have all the power in the world so when we agree with our own words or other people's words we create this sense of certainty in the moment we have this sense of certainty we are sure we are right and when we're sure we are right then that signals to our brain to go lock it in that's true and now that becomes the filter for all the information we receive all the the, the millions of bits of information or the millions of possibilities in the world we now become locked in to find just evidence of what we believe is true and we are certain about to to then confirm that we're right so this confirma- confirmation bias happens but to, to go all the way back to ground zero and, and realized yeah evidence from that point will feel so real but it's only evidence of what we decided was true what if what we decided was true actually wasn't true 
and and then to realize that that stuff is changeable because you're not the actor in the story or the storyteller you made those agreements in the first place so he was describing to me the process of coming into his power picking up his pen realizing i i agreed i wrote the rules i decided how i must be to compensate for what i perceive was wrong with me when i realized that what was wrong with me was a misunderstanding then i do not need to compensate i can change my mind i can alter the agreements i can update the rules and so for three days he had this profound intoxicating experience of the power within him this power that had always been there the power that he'd been outsourcing to others he found it in himself it was just stunning absolutely stunning it was it was such a glorious conversation that affected me for days afterwards like it and and still even just now retelling the story such a beautiful beautiful experience so um you know i I thought it might be useful just to share with you my latest agreements because if you can change them once you can change them twice you can change them 10 times you can change them whenever you like and every time you change them and lock them in and form certainty they will become their own self-fulfilling prophecies they will gather evidence that they are true so uh, I, I love the idea of holding things tightly and loosely at the same time go all in there are some things it makes no sense to deconstruct you know be certain about certain things live as though they're true and they will be true other things the gift of doubt deconstruct them what if they're wrong great so uh, i'm i'm mindful about the fact that it doesn't make sense to deconstruct certain things and it makes an awful amount of sense to deconstruct other things it's kind of the idea of being pragmatic organizing your life based on how things are working and the moment something stops working the way you'd like will then break it down and optimize it so um, I, I'll share my, my most current agreements with you with, with some trepidation. Uh, and, and the reason I, I do this is because probably, well, not probably, definitely because of an agreement I've made around how I'll be in the world and that I will be wholehearted and I will let you watch. So that, that comes with it some significant costs because you watch me now and you hear what I say about now and if you've just joined in and you're just watching in now very easy to misunderstood without any context so you'll hear me say things at certain times you're like bloody hell this guy's how is he so sure about anything that must be dangerous that can't be wrong you can't have that level of certainty about anything and that's arrogance that's being closed and sure if you haven't heard the journey if you haven't heard of the context then very easily misunderstand and but nevertheless, there are, there are you know, people around the world who are, who are desperate to understand and, and be convinced that it is possible to change their agreements, not just to have an idea and to then go, well, I've got to manage this agreement for the rest of my life. So it's about positive reinforcement and I've got to write affirmations on my mirror every day and always be mindful about these positive things that I'm aligning myself to. And the moment I stop paying attention, then I'll revert to you know, old versions to go, no, no, it's possible to actually update this stuff, to lock it in and then not to have to pay attention to it. So, uh, yeah, take it for what it's worth. Uh, and if you'd, you'd like to critique me and misunderstand me, that's I'm, I'm open to that because I know who I am and I know how these work for me and these are beautiful upgrades to my life. And they have not been my agreements for long. Most of these are 
our agreements within the last year. Some of them are, are within, within the last um, few months. So let me start with my agreement around money. So um, let me just backtrack to where I, where I, how I got to this point. Um, I, I modelled this from my sister-in-law, who her and my brother run an orphanage in Guatemala. You might have heard me talk about the visit I went there. It's a big operation. I would say um, show me a, a more effective, um, more, more productive seemed like the wrong word to use, so that, that can't be it. But a, a better run orphanage anywhere in the world. Um, they got 97 staff. They got almost 200 kids. Their vision is to see these kids not only through till they're 16 and then throw them out again, but to see them through till 30 if they need to, until they've got a university degree, until they're equipped for life, better jobs, English speaking, you know, ready to actually be contributors to the world and break cycles of poverty. It's extraordinary what they've got set up there. Um, they're on their way to being self-sufficient and on their way to being contributors to other orphanages, which is a really unique model. But, you know, incredibly huge budget. They've got people that support their vision from around the world. And they've also got work in Kenya. Um, so watching her run this operation, and one of the things I observed around her relationship with money is there was not evidence of one single moment of energy wasted in worrying about resources. And as I quizzed her around this, I discovered it was true that her agreement was I am resourced. I'm equipped. This is my work. God has called me to this work. This is important and meaningful work. I will have the resources I need to do this work. And so she just watches resources materialize. She watches people contribute to projects. She waits until they contribute to a project before building a project, never goes in over her head, but has these extraordinary visions of what must happen there and sees the resources come. And so I was I was really chastised for my little faith when watching her operate because I thought I was quite entrepreneurial quite a risk taker had a big vision for the world you know playing in the puddles compared to what she's doing and so um, I came home and, re and reviewed my experience of life my experience of being an entrepreneur with a vision to change the world and and looked at how my relationship with money had changed and I realized that um while this has not been true, that I had come from a, an agreement that money was hard and I could not be trusted with money, that money would corrupt me. So the agreement was that um, I, I was not capable of, of um, controlling the, the risk of mishandling money, of using it for selfish gain, of having it corrupt me. So not capable to change that agreement and go, no, money just magnifies what's in your heart to do. So um, if I'm secure in my value and worth and know the work that I'm doing, well, then it is safe to be rich and I will be rich. And, and watching um, you know, my net wealth grow exponentially off the back of updating that agreement and watching you know, our financial systems and patterns change uh, extraordinarily and just going, hang on a minute, I, I actually have not any justified reason to have one moment anxiety about money. Ken Honda's book, Happy Money, was a key part in this agreement being updated as well. If you haven't read that book, I, I think that's the best money book ever written, how to have a happy relationship with money. And he says the joy of money is in the flow. And I, I agree with that. That is an agreement. So, arragato when money comes in, arragato when money comes out. Watch it flow in, watch it flow out, but do not spend a moment being anxious around how it will work. 
I, I agree that money is the reward you get for accurately understanding your value in the world. And I do know my value in the world. I do know who I am and what I am doing. So therefore, money will always be there for me. So uh, I'm resourced is my agreement. And that is a beautiful place to be. I I can compare the times where I've been racked with physical anxiety of heartache around where resources will come from, around the lack of money and how that's impacting everything and soul-crushing. Uh, and I'm sure each of you have had experience of that. Maybe you're in soul-crushing physical anxiety around money right now. So uh, just to share, not to, not to boast around how well my money is going, um, but to say that... Uh, the central driver of a happy relationship with money is an agreement firstly about who I am and secondly an agreement around how money works for me uh, secondly I have an agreement around life and it's related to the the two tattoos I have on my legs power and grace so my agreement has been refined and updated if you've heard me talk about this recently um, I have already been given all the grace that I require grace the agreement is grace is inbuilt into the system I do not need a miracle I will never need a miracle I've already been given a miracle. I've already been given everything that I will need. It's Sometimes it's hidden. Often it's really hidden. But it's always there. I have everything I need within me already. And I've already been given all the power I require. So again, that's often doesn't seem to be the case. But that's if, it, if I don't look like I've got power, it's because I've given power away. So power and grace is my agreements that I have an abundance of power and grace at all times. Therefore, I can have and do and be whatever I desire. Now, speaking of desire, I have made an agreement that I can trust my desire, that my nature is good, that my desires are pure. I can have what I want because what I want is good. So not a moment spent being anxious around, should I want this? Is this a good thing to want? To go, no, this is my desire and my, my desires can be trusted. So all in. Now, you can, you, know, I can, you can hear the arguments in my mind as I'm saying these things. You're like, well, hang on a minute, that sounds dangerous. That sounds, ah, however it sounds. These are my agreements and these are beautiful agreements, beautiful additions to my life. And uh, my work. So uh, my primary agreement is I am a writer. That is the central organizing principle of my life. Primarily, I'm a writer. Then I get to speak about what I write. Then I get to coach about the principles that I've written about and spoken about. So that order of operations is very, very important because it helps me manage my energy, manage my expectations, lift my eyes to see the biggest picture, the biggest contribution I'm, I can make. So, But that locking in, I'm certain around who I am and what I'm doing and, and the best language I've got around defining that is I am a writer. That is, that is how I bring myself to the world in a way that makes the most sense, that gives me the best chance to make the biggest difference, that really is the fulfillment of destiny and potential and um, all that's been given to me. Uh, recently, I, you know, with this influx of clients and, just, and my desire to serve clients wholehearted, my desire to be a, a world-class coach, my desire to be you know, one of, if not the best coach in the world, means that I would love to give every client I have an excellent experience. I would love to be to serve them at a very precise level and have them realize the results that they want. Um, however, my responsibility is, is not to give them results. My responsibility is to serve them their results are theirs my agreement is i i will not i cannot it makes zero sense to take responsibility for my client's results 
I know with 100% certainty that I am an excellent coach and then I know I know how to solve a certain problem and I know how to hold people in a space to get that but I cannot make anyone do anything and to lay awake wondering about how a certain person is going to feel pressure around helping them get the thing that they said that they must having them paid me a lot of money to do that it makes no sense and I will not spend one moment of energy time resources going down that path that that is a foul in the game that i am playing that is i got to go sit on the bench if i worry about money or my clients results does not make any sense so i love the idea of agreements just simplifying the decision making process because you know if, if i am resourced and i don't worry about my clients results i'm a writer i have grace and power and my desires can be trusted like it kind of simplifies you know the abundant number of decisions I'm faced with in any any day because I already have gone oh well if that's all true then I know where I'm not playing today I know a bunch of things I'll never do today so I can I can really play in quite a narrow space wholeheartedly so I'm not sure where you're up to in your updating agreement process but um, those those were not the agreements that I started with I I've not had those agreements very long at all, but they're beautiful agreements. They'll serve me at a very high level in this season, and there may come a time where I find even better ways of agreeing, more more, more pure, higher-level agreements that serve me even better. So I wanted to share that with you as an example of how what's working for me. Um, take that for whatever it's worth to you, and um, my intention was that it may propel you to do the work around updating your own agreements. I feel like that was a pretty long podcast, so... Look, uh, yeah, I won't have one next week. Well, I don't think so. Um, I'm, I'm running my 18 Models Coach training event, which will be a real highlight. Got a great bunch of people in the room for that, uh, equipping them with the tools that I've developed over the last uh, 12 or 13 years as a coach. It's my toolbox. And uh, the great news is that because of influx of clients from around the world, there was a bunch of people who wanted to do this training and were never going to come to Goulburn. So I was never going to record it. Um, but those two nevers collided and I lost and they won and so there's been enough people saying Jamin but you've got to record it because I'm not coming to Goldman and I've got to, I've got to learn your models so anyway all that to say um, perhaps two or three weeks after the event next week then uh, there'll be a, an online version of the 18 models coach training so if you would like to understand the coaching framework from a one-eyed coach from someone who's implacable around insecurity as a solvable problem within the coaching framework and that's an essential distinction by the way and I, and I really hold that space really clearly in the elegantly simple solutions to complex people problems book if you haven't read that one just the idea of you know it's no good bringing all these tools if the frame isn't set up so setting up a clean frame that's outcomes focused and judgment free and with the foundational presupposition that people work perfectly so there's an incredible amount of structure to deconstruct. Um, that's what creates leverage for these then 18 tools to create remarkable transformation. So if that's of interest to you, um, reach out to Catherine or I and we'll let you know uh, when that's available. Otherwise, I'll talk to you perhaps in a fortnight. Bye for now.